And as we come to uh, the scriptures, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4. This morning we'll take up verses 7 through 12. And as you're turning, I'll pray for our time in the Word. So Lord, as we come to your word, thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. And I do pray that you would use it this morning to really strengthen us to love, but also to uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, but ultimately that you would encourage us as we, um, as our eyes are focused on Christ and your great love for us through Christ. So I pray that this would be uh, just a powerful time of your spirit at work in us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So as we're working our way through 1 John, by way of reminder, the heart of this is John wants the church to have assurance of eternal life. And so Throughout his book, John lays out these tests of assurance that we know God, that we have eternal life. One of these tests is uh, the theological test. Do we believe in the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God who has come in the flesh, fully human, fully God? The morality test. Do we seek to obey God's commandments and live lives of righteousness? And then there's the social test. Do we seek to truly love one another? Throughout his letter, John circles back to these tests as um, assurance of genuine Christian faith. In this morning's passage, John circles back to the test of love. So in his letter, John has already covered love a couple of different times. In chapter two, John writes that whoever loves his brother, his sister, whoever loves those who are in Christ is walking in the light. And, and this is a reference to Christ, who in Christ the light has come. He has overcome darkness. And John's saying, whoever walks in this light walks in love. He says in chapter 2, but whoever hates his brother is walking in darkness. Then in chapter 3, John writes, that our love for one another is evidence that we have passed from death to life, meaning spiritual death to eternal life. And then here we have in chapter 4, John circles back again to love. And even in our passage this morning, three different times in verses 7, 11, and 12, there is the plea for us to love one another. So all 
three of these tests, the test of belief, the test of obedience, the test of love, they all work together. But I'm going to agree with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and what I just did there is a classic name drop, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones, minister of, uh, minister of Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, great preacher, wrote extensively on the book of 1 John. Here's what he says, and I agree, that the test of love might be the ultimate test of all three of them, and here's why. With the theological test, we can, in our heads, we can know doctrine, we can know our creeds and confessions, we can know our theology, but we may not love well. Or, with the test of morality, think about the Pharisees. They sought to follow the scriptures completely, right, in obedience to God's commandments, but they did not love well. But when we come to the test of love, what John is talking about is agape love. This is unselfish, sacrificial, get your hands dirty loving those who are difficult to love. Love. That's the kind of love John is talking about. This doesn't come naturally for us. In fact, it's incredibly difficult. And why? This would take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. So we could say they were created as lovers, to love God and to love neighbor. But then in Genesis 3, the minute they sinned, they did not cease to be lovers, but that love turned inward. Martin Luther said it this way. He says, as a sinner, the person is curved in on himself. So this is self-love with various expressions, self-centeredness, self-assertion, self-conceit, self-indulgence, self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-glorifying. So here's the problem. Okay, we were, as created in the image of God, we were created as lovers, right? To, to, de to delight in love of God and neighbor, but our love is turned inward. So the question is, so how do we grow in love? In other words, if that's your New Year's resolution, I'm gonna love God and neighbor better this year, what are the steps to that? And the answer is this, that we must begin with looking at the love of God and then ask the question, how does that shape our love for one another? Here's John's answer in verse 11. The heart of it is this. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so what I want to do this morning is flesh out the statement that God so loved us because we need to be reminded constantly of God's radical love. And the more we grasp the very depth of God's love, with more depth we can love. So there's a flow to this passage this morning. I want us to consider love through the lens first of God's eternal nature. We'll see that in verses 7 and 8. And then God's action. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And finally, the way that love plays out in community in verses 11 and 12. And so with that, let's begin. Uh, well, let's take a look at God's nature of love. So verse 7, beloved 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So John begins with this exhortation, beloved or dear friends, let us love one another. And again, John's talking about agape love, not self-centered love, but he's talking about agape love. The challenge is because of our sin nature, this doesn't come naturally, but this is a love that comes from God. It's a love that God is working out in and through our lives through his spirit. But John does two things here. First, he lays out a test or a warning. He says, whoever loves like this has been born of God, meaning rebirth through the Holy Spirit. But he says, whoever does not love according to this cannot assume that they know God. Here's the second thing John does. He roots the love of God, or he, he roots love in God's eternal nature. In verse seven, he writes, love is from God. In other words, God is the source of all love. And again, this doesn't come naturally on this earth, but this comes from above. But then John makes this statement in verse eight. He says, God is love. Notice, John did not say God loves or God is loving. Okay, we can say that about a lot of people. But what John says is God is love, and that's an entirely different statement. When John says God is love, this means that everything that God does, he does out of love. Now, a couple of uh, ways to think about this. This doesn't exclude other attributes. We can say of God, God is merciful and just and righteous and holy. But the other thing that we have to keep in mind is the Bible doesn't allow us to put love side by side with other attributes as if it changes like God has mood swings. Like one minute he's loving and the next minute he's judging. No, what the Bible does is says God is love and no matter what, when he creates, he creates out of love. When he rules, he rules out of love. When he judges, he judges out of love. Everything God does is out of love. So at times we can get caught up or people can get caught up on this idea of God's wrath. But even as we consider that, as if one minute God's loving and then he's no longer loving and wrathful, even wrath is God's anger towards evil and sin in the world because God is love. Okay, so how do we know God is love? What's the proof? Well, we have the scriptures. This is the inspired word of God. This is God speaking directly to us, and God has revealed to us that he is love. So God wants us to get that in our minds and our hearts. But also, we need to consider the Trinity. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, by the way, if, if one of your New Year's resolutions is, I want to read more, I'd say this would be a good book to pick up, Delighting in the Trinity. In the very intro and the first paragraph of the intro, Reeves makes this comment. It says, God is love because God is a trinity. And he makes the case that we should not think of God first and foremost 
as a creator or a ruler. And here's why. First and foremost, God reveals himself as a loving God, a loving father. And Reeves says, perhaps the way to appreciate this best is to ask what God was doing before creation, before he ever created the world or ruled it, before anything else. God, the Father, was loving his Son. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before creation, the eternal love and fellowship of the Trinity, eternal. So the Trinity wasn't lonely. So the question is, why creation? Why the creation of the universe? Why our world? Why us? The simple answer is this. Love poured out. As Reeves put it, since God the Father has eternally loved the Son, it is entirely characteristic of him to turn and create others that he might also love them. And this is what Jesus says in John 17. He says, I made known to them your name. So Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I made known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying, I have made you, Father, known to the disciples so that they can get caught up in that love that we have, so that they can understand the depth of your love, Father. It's an amazing truth. So how should that truth, that God is love, that that's his eternal nature, affect our lives? It should keep us out of the field of daisies. Here's what I mean by that. There's this game that originated with the French. I had to look this up because uh, I was curious about the origin of this. Um, and it's, it's when a person who wants to know if the affection they feel towards somebody else, if that is reciprocated. And so they will uh, pick a daisy, that's the most popular flower, and take the petals. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not, right? And I wonder at times if we play this game with God and sometimes probably not even being fully conscious that we're doing it. God loves me. God loves me not. God loves me. Or, or maybe it's this way. God really loves me. God kind of loves me. God really loves me. And God really loves me. I read my Bible. I prayed today. Maybe not so much. I skipped it. God really loves me. I got a raise at work. I got, I got laid off. Maybe not so much really loves me. I was obedient to that habitual sin that I fall into. Maybe God loves me not so much because I fell into that sin again. But God doesn't, he cannot choose to be unloving to us in Christ. And we may go through a season of testing. We may go through a season of discipline because of sin, but it's always out of love. It's always out of grace. I love how J.I. Packer, and if you want a New Year's resolution book to read, Knowing God, it's fantastic. Here's what J.I. Packer writes. God is love is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. Every single thing that happens to him expresses God's love to him. God is love to him, holy, omnipotent love. 
at every moment and in every event of every day's life. Even when he cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealings, he knows that there is love in and behind them. And so he can rejoice always, even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. God's eternal nature of love is so important for us. And again, how do we know God is love? The scriptures tell us. We see in the Trinity it's poured out. But the the biggest focus for us, the proof of God's love, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. So if we look at God is love at the end of verse 8, verses 9 and 10 are like an exclamation point on it. So consider verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in verses seven and eight, God's love, we're rooted, God's love is rooted in God's eternal nature. Now we see God's action. These verses pretty much are a summary of Christian theology. John writes, in this the love of God was manifest among us, and here it is, that God sent his only son into the world to give us life. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we can say many things about God. God is a gracious God. God's a merciful God. God's a holy God, a loving God. But we cannot miss this. God is a sending God. I love the theme of this in Scripture. God is a sending God because God is on mission, and his mission is redemption. If I can put it this way, in a nutshell, God's mission is to bring Genesis 11 to Revelation 7. Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. What we find there, what we see there, are nations divided and scattered in rebellious sin against God. And the goal, what God is doing in his work through Christ, is creating one people from every tongue and tribe and nation. It is one nation gathered rather than scattered. It's one nation in unity rather than divided. In worship of God, and perfect love of neighbor. And the new heavens and the new earth where sin is no more. And we long for that day. God is ascending God. And it's demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give a few highlights here. After Genesis 11 and the fiasco of the Tower of Babel, we have Genesis 12. God sends Abraham with this promise that he will bless him into a great nation, and through that nation, they will be a blessing to the world if they obey. And then God sends Joseph, later in the story, God sends Joseph to Egypt to save lives in a famine and to preserve a remnant of God's people. Then we see God sent Moses to deliver God's people out of slavery in Egypt and to establish God's people under God's gracious rule. God sent the prophets over and over to remind God's people of his promises. 
and to warn them to remain faithful to the one true God, to keep his commandments, because that is where life is. But repeatedly, God's people failed. And then the New Testament opens with this glorious truth that God sent his only son as a gift of grace. This mission is central to the Bible. And here's where it gets personal for you, for me. God sent his only son to meet our most critical need. We needed to be rescued. The scriptures are clear that we were, apart from Christ, enemies of God, Romans 5.10, hostile to God, Romans 7, dead in our sins and children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, blinded from the light of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4. There's, when I think about our need for rescue, there's this graphic image that comes to my mind, and it's this. Um, it's a video, uh, or it's footage that I've watched over and over of a plane wreck. Here's, here's, what, it, here's what took place. So on January 13th, 1982, Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River, Washington, D.C. area. The temperature of the water in that crash was one degree above freezing. A few survivors were able to make it up to the top, and they were clinging to the wreckage, holding on for dear life. But again, the water is one degree above freezing, so they don't have long. Rescue heli helicopters able to quickly get to the scene, and with that helicopter, the lifeline with the rope is tossed out. Okay, one man grabs the lifeline, and he's got it around one arm, and as, as the helicopter is pulling him through the water, he grabs onto a woman to bring her with him. But because of how cold the water was, uh, their limbs freezing, hands freezing, they, they let go of each other. So now she's left out in the middle of the water. She is temporarily blinded because of the fuel in the water. She can no longer really swim because it's so cold, her arms and her legs are giving out. She has nothing to cling to. She is completely hopeless and helpless in that moment, and she is beginning to drown. You can see the struggle. It's a vivid image of me, of the need for rescue. But then, on the shore, a group of people are gathered, and they're watching and then seemingly out of nowhere, one of the men on the shore jumps into the water, swims out to her, grabs her, pulls her to shore, and rescues her. And the reason that this is blazed in my mind is that she is us apart from Christ, blinded by sin, nothing to cling to, hopeless, helpless, dead in the water, drowning. It's interesting, one of the survivors later made a comment, interviewed later made a comment about this, of the amazement of seeing the lifeline, the life rope sent down from the sky to them. I think she's talking about the helicopter, but for us, that's Jesus, right? That God sent his only son. Ephesians two, four, and five. Because if we want to ask, so why? Why'd God do it? 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So what did God do specifically? Let's look at this in verses 9 and 10. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is loaded. God sent his only son. This is an echo back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son so that we can truly live through him. Again, this picture of the Trinity in, in Jesus' prayer in John 17 that, that reveals the, this to us, that the Father sent the Son so that the, those who would believe in the Son can get caught up in this eternal joy and love of the Father and the Son. And Jesus sent, or God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning that Christ's death satisfied God's justice and wrath against sin. So Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dove in the water, so to speak, for us and rescued a multitude and is still rescuing. It is thrilling to me to think about this day, the Lord's day, throughout the world as the gospel is being preached, Christ is still rescuing people grabbing people and pulling them out of the water of sin and death. And why did God do this? Why is God sent on rescuing people who are blindly walking away from him or maybe even wildly running towards hell? Why? John's answer, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us first grace. This brings us to verses 11 and 12. We've looked at God's nature, eternal love, and his action in sending Christ. Finally, how does this play out in our community? Verse 11, beloved, if, we so, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Okay, so, dear friends, he says, if God so loved us, and again, that's so, the Father sent his only Son, the Son sacrificed his own life on a cross for us. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The gospel is the model and the motivation for our love for one another. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Okay, here, here's what I think the guts of this is. No one has ever seen God in his fullness, like his, you know, his unveiled essence, his glory, his majesty. No, no person is allowed to see that. But if we demonstrate the love of God together in community, God is, God is seen in and through us. And this is the assurance. John talks about the assurance that we can know God. We've seen it in Jesus. 
We're able to know God through Jesus, but we also see it in the presence of a community that loves with the kind of love God is talking about. John says, if we love God, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And this is the Trinity at work. God is the source of love. God the Father sent the Son on a rescue mission. The Son perfectly fulfilled the rescue mission, right? The Son was faithful to the mission, rescuing us by the way of the cross. And now the Holy Spirit, it's in the Holy Spirit that abides in us because of Christ. And his love is perfected or made complete together as we are in community. In other words, God has, through the Holy Spirit, created a new community with new hearts and new motivation and calls us to work that out with one another in love. So the Trinity is at work, but the scriptures call us to be at work in this as well. And so what does this mean? First, we have to be honest about our own sin and acknowledge it in community. And here's what I mean. I I name-dropped Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones earlier. I want to read a section um, and it's a great section, it's, but it's not a section that any of us are going to like, but we need to hear it. He says this, you know, I talked, uh, I mentioned that list of self-love, self-love, and here's what he says. If there, or is there anyone who would like to say that this is not a true description of himself or herself? that it is the sort of person we are, or that is the sort of person we are, all of us are. It is no use denying it. That is the effect of the fall and sin. That is what what it is made of us, self-centeredness. Looking at myself, watching myself, examining myself, always regarding myself. Self-assertion, asserting myself. I desire things and I must have them. Self-conceit. How ready I am to defend myself and to condemn the same things in others. Self-indulgence. I'm very indulgent with myself. I prohibit things in other persons, but it doesn't matter if I do the same thing myself. Self-pleasing. Always doing things that please me. Self-seeking. Always out for the self. Self-pity. Why should people treat me like this? I've not done, I've not done any harm. I am not in the wrong at all. Why should people be so difficult? I'm having a hard time, and it really isn't fair. Self-sensitiveness, how touchy I am, how easily wounded, imagining difficulties and attacks, seeing them when they are not there, an abominable sensitivity. Self-defense, always on the defensive, waiting for people to be unpleasant. And because we are like that, we almost make them unpleasant. We are on the defensive. Self-sufficiency, self-consciousness. Oh, get away from this self, he says. The way our love curved inward towards the self affects the community around us, the community of believers. And so what's the answer? If God so loved us, Right? We ought to love one another. In other words, um, we can't play the daisy game with each other. I love you. I love you not. I love you. I love you not. Right? E- even 
ones that we have conflict with and are just so difficult for us, God calls us to love. I love the way um, John Stott, um, he was asked to give some reflections, reflections of an octogenarian, meaning an 80-year-old, and he talked about various things in his life as he looks back. And one of them, he says, he talks about loving the unlovely. And he would say this, as people would approach him, in his mind, he would do this. What a precious person you are to God. It is a privilege for me to be called to care for you. Challenging. So, first, we have to acknowledge our sin towards the self, but the second one is then to think about the love of God. If God so loved us, so sacrificed for us his grace, we are also to love one another. And Jesus said this, in John 13, 34 through 35, said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, one more thought. Where I left off when I was talking about God as ascending God, I left off when he sent Jesus, but there's more to it. Because after Jesus accomplished what he did by way of the cross, right, conquering sin and death, um, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples. And through the disciples, through the apostles, the church was born, and the Holy Spirit, through the church, is sent out into the world. And that's our calling. We are sent, but we're sent to keep this in mind. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love. So it has to start here and then um, ripple out into the world. And what kind of love is this? I'll end with this. Can't talk about love without 1 Corinthians 13, that this is the love that Jesus perfectly demonstrated and that we're called to. And it's this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mercies and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth of your love. And I pray, according to Paul's prayer, out of Ephesians chapter three, that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in us and that we would be rooted and grounded in this love and that we'd have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
and that we would therefore be filled with the fullness of God. So Father, we give you thanks that the, the statement, God is love, we give you thanks that that is true of you towards us because of Christ. We give you thanks that you sent your only son into the world to rescue us, to secure us in that love. And I pray that based on your action of Christ, that we would respond with action towards one another, that we would love, that you would help us to sacrifice greatly for one another, to look past grievances, to recognize our own sin, that you rescued sinners and that we would be gracious to others. So we give you thanks. Help us to love. And I pray that the love that we would manifest as a church would draw others from the world who do not know you in. We give you thanks for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.